Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Americans love to tell ourselves stories about how welcoming we've been to immigrants and refugees. But after World War II, polling found that the citizenry was nearly unanimously against allowing more displaced Europeans from coming to the United States. And it was this resistance to Jewish refugees both during the war and after it that sparked the creation of the current international refugee and asylum system. Now, Haitian asylum seekers at the border have spotlighted the problems with this system again. So we're going to walk through how the policy and rules developed, and then we'll talk about how the local Haitian community sees the situation. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The images of mounted Border Patrol agents forcibly beating back Haitian asylum seekers at the Mexican border were outrageous. After they became public in an almost comically tone-deaf move, the Biden administration suspended the use of horse patrols. But the problem wasn't the horses, but the policies that put Border Patrol forces into that position, expelling people from a poor, devastated country without allowing them to apply for asylum in the U.S. Those viral images can and should be a moment for Americans to ask, how did we get to this point? For the next three days on Forum, we'll talk with members of the Bay Area's Haitian, Afghan, and Central American communities to discuss conditions in their countries and the struggle to gain protected status. First, to launch the series, we look at the origins of the international asylum policies and how we've made decisions about who should be let in and why. We're joined by Karen Musalo, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So let's start out with just defining some of the terms here. Uh, What's the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? So there's really not a difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. There is a difference, however, as to the routes to protection, the routes by which someone gets recognized. Um, A refugee, the definition of a refugee is an individual with a well-founded fear of persecution for specific named grounds like race, religion, nationality, political opinion, social group membership. Um, And someone who gets asylum has to meet that definition. So the difference isn't between the definition, but it's how they get here. In U.S. law, the 1980 Refugee Act, which established our current system, it created two distinct routes to protection for people who meet this definition of having a well-founded fear. 
and I think this is where a lot of confusion arises that people mm-hmm. don't understand these two different ways. So I want to really briefly describe them. No, please um, do. So the first route to protection is is through something called the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, and this the the president and the judiciary committees of Congress each year confer, and they set a number of individuals to be admitted as refugees. They designate a number. They designate um, from what countries around the world those refugees will be admitted. And they indicate what are their priorities, what kinds of people they want to protect, whether it's individuals fleeing religious persecution or individuals fleeing, um, uh, you know, racially motivated persecution. They set that number. Those individuals are interviewed and qualify for protection in interviews outside the U.S. And then they enter as refugees and are entitled to all of the uh, social services and support that the law provides. So that that process is the president, the judiciary committees, individuals entering as refugees. Got it. Then the law provides a second route. And I think this really um, is, is what is misunderstood. The second route in the law, ex- the law expressly provides that any individual who shows up at the U.S. border or is within the U.S., whether they arrive here with legal documentation or not, have the right to request asylum. And if they meet that definition of a refugee, the well-founded fear, that they should then be granted protection. So so I say that because I hear so many people saying, um, this is illegal. Why are these individuals, you know, why don't they come legally? But the law explicitly and expressly says that individuals fleeing persecution can arrive at our borders and seek protection. And it expressly does not require them to have any legal documents to enter. And in fact, they actually must come to the border, right, if they're seeking asylum. So they basically have to be touching the border or on the other side of it in order to make use of that particular route, correct? Exactly. And so I think if we if we just make that clear to begin with, we can we can eliminate this misperception that somehow the individuals showing up at our border are breaking the law. As a matter of fact, they're actually obeying the law. Um, I like you may have another question, so I'll stop for a moment. I I I do actually. You know, so you're describing the kind of post 1980 system. I want to go back a little bit further to where the well-founded fear sort of standard came from. It's supposed to be, you know, the 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 standard that people have to meet in order to to acquire this protected status. So, what where did it come from, and what's its status, kind of in international law? Yeah. So, thank you for asking that. And I know that in the in the intro to this program. Um, you know, mention of of World War Two and, mm-hmm. and you know attitudes. So so let me just say that um, that the the rejection of people fleeing persecution is unfortunately not something new. And when Jews were fleeing the Holocaust, um, there was a, a massive failure of of protection, and the sort of iconic um, image of the failure of protection is that there was a a ship called the St. Louis that departed from Hamburg, Germany with almost a thousand, um, mostly Jews on board. They had been guaranteed um, that they would be allowed to disembark in Cuba. This is pre-Castro. But when they arrived 
a number of factors, including anti-Semitism in Cuba, the Cubans um, refused their request. So they were right off the Florida coast and they desperately and frantically um, asked Franklin Roosevelt to um, allow them to disembark. And at that point in time, more than two thirds of Americans were, um, were opposed to protecting Jews fleeing Europe. Mm -hmm. And that affected uh, Franklin Roosevelt's response, which was no response. Um, mm. And the ship, the St. Louis, was forced to return to Europe where, um, you know, Jews were, did find some, um, I don't want to say protection, they were dispersed throughout various countries in Europe that would take them. But when the Germans invaded those countries, it was fully a third of those who were on the mm. St. Louis perished. That failure of protection led to the, the, the countries of the world, the international community, sort of saying, we can do better. And they came together in a conference to draft what are, is the main treaty establishing refugee protection. It's the 1951 UN Refugee Convention and its 1967 protocol. It prohibits countries from returning individuals to persecution. And the US became a party um, to that agreement and in order to comply with the obligations that it undertook when it became a party in 1980, it enacted um, U.S. law, which is the 1980 Refugee Act, adopting that same definition. So I think, Alexis, your first question was, where does the definition come from? It is the definition for in the 51 Convention and its 67 Protocol, which was drafted as a result of failure of protection. So the irony now that we see a failure of protection and rejection of those fleeing persecution, it really is this, this very um, tragic sort of you know, phenomenon that we often see. So how uh, tightly or how well has the U.S. lived up to this international commitment to not turn back people with well-founded fear of, of persecution. I mean, I, I, my mind immediately goes to Central America in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your point is really uh, incredibly well taken. So if we if we talk about those who who show up fleeing persecution and show up at our border, uh, the U.S. has has done quite poorly. I would have to say. And one of the main factors is that the well, there's a number of factors, but one of them is that. Um, the, the U.S. often supports repressive governments, re, uh, governments that violate the human rights of their citizens, and then is very reluctant to, uh, to recognize that people fleeing the governments it, it is supporting um, would qualify for protection. Because what does that say about how the, who the U.S. is supporting? So foreign policy really gets in there and supersedes the commitment uh, and the rule of law to protect those fleeing persecution. So with the Central Americans, as many of your listeners may know, um, the U.S. supported the murderous uh, military regime in El Salvador, supported the equally genocidal, um, a, a genocidal uh, government in Guatemala, and um, and has, you know, I'm sure you'll cover this in subsequent programs, but the U.S., had long, long, you know, footprint in the region in a, with adverse interventions in Guatemala, going back to sponsoring the 1954 coup in Guatemala. And so in light of that, the U.S. was very reluctant to grant protection to Salvadorans and Guatemalans. And the grant rate at a time when 
indisputable, massive human rights violations of Guatemalans and Salvadorans, the grant rate for individuals arriving at our border was less than 2%, and in some cases, less than 1%. Mm -hmm. And it was only because of a lawsuit called the American Baptist Church v. v. Mies lawsuit that argued you know, this discriminatory treatment that there was some uh, you know, remedial measures that the US took. But if you'll permit me, because we also were talking about the, the Haitians, which is very much on people's minds, um, I, I would like to just talk about how the, the Haitians have been treated from the very beginning of the US enacting the 1980 Refugee Act. So um, if, if I could just say- Yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna come back to that for sure too. Um, well, let's let's actually um, quickly pause just to ask about Trump's changes to this law, particularly if we can um, do a quick summary of the implementation of Title 42, uh, which was a 1944 law, which is now being executed by the, the CDC at the border. Yeah. So so, you know, throughout the Trump administration, there were uh, were successive attempts to really close down the right to seek protection at the southern border. But the most extreme of all of these was the use of a um, of, of, of health, you know, of a health law to close the border um, to all asylum seekers. And the way it came came about was that the, um, the the pandemic was really used as a pretext to close to close the border. Yep. And the the um, CDC, the, the Centers for Disease Control, actually was opposed to this idea of closing the border as a measure to protect public health. And the White House leaned on um, on the CDC and actually forced them to take this measure. We're talking about the history and evolution of the U.S. asylum system with Karen Musallo, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. Do you have questions about this system? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the history and evolution of the U.S. asylum system with Karen Musallo, professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. And right before the break, we were talking about the application of a 1944 law, Title uh, 42, which the Trump administration used to largely uh, block, um, uh, to largely close the border during the pandemic. Um, Karen Musallo, there's some litigation around... Title 42. And I was hoping maybe you could walk us through um, how that litigation has gone. Yeah, the, the litigation, so, so the, the, this total closure of the border, really unprecedented, really saying that asylum seekers can be returned without any process. 
And so it was first, the first challenge to Title 42 was on behalf of unaccompanied children, that they should not be subjected to just immediate expulsion at the border. And that litigation um, was successful. And there was an injunction that was issued. This was during the Trump administration. And when the Biden administration came in, it actually agreed to not apply Title 42 to children, but to apply it to all under individual. Mm. So a second uh, lawsuit was brought that was on behalf of families. And just last week, um, I believe it was last week, I'm losing a little sense of time here, uh, a, a, a federal district court judge in the D.C. Circuit said, yes, this policy, there's likelihood that this will be found unlawful and that therefore um, issuing an, an injunction against the policy, in other words, stopping the policy, but giving the government, staying that order for two weeks um, at, and giving the government time to appeal, which the government has done. And in that two week period, even though the court had spoken and said this was unlawful, we could see what the Biden administration did applying it to um, all Haitians, including families, to expel them and return them back to um, to Haiti. Yeah. You know, there's uh, all of these things going on that are sort of closing down the border within our you know domestic politics and, and foreign policy. And at the same time, we have this wellspring of support for Afghan uh, refugees. Um, and we we also know that the 1980 um, Refugee Act did kind of grow out of the sympathy uh, for Southeast Asian um, refugees from the war in Vietnam and the, the spillover into associated countries. Do you think that this moment, even though right now our policies seem extremely um, strict, do you think this moment could open up new space for a, a new kind of compromise on asylum seeking and refugees? I mean, I, I, how can I say this? I, 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 really <laughs> I think you were going to say no. I think that's how you were no, going to say. No, I, I really hope that um, that that people are better than what we sometimes see in the policies that are that they that people support and that are being implemented in their name. I, I really have this hope that if people could put their themselves in the situation and understand um, what causes people to take such desperate straits to flee, it's because they literally are fleeing for their life. And to send them back under those circumstances is really so inhumane. And I, and I just think that in a way, there's been too much polarization, too much demonizing, too much fear whipped up, that the goodness of people to sort of put themselves in, in the situation of others has been... Um, has been crippled in a way. And, and so I do hope that this is an opportunity to push through that. And I know that many um, people across, you know, so many communities, including faith-based community, are, are trying to, to, to explain and, and, and show these are human beings that are depending on our decency to not send them to their deaths. And so I hope we're better than that. I hope we're better than what we did to Jews fleeing the Holocaust with the St. Louis. But I mean, we've already unfortunately crossed that line many times, sending people back to their death. But but let's not continue. And so that is my hope. Yeah. 
We're talking about the development of the U.S. asylum and refugee system with Karen Musallo, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. And we do want to hear from you. Do you have questions about the asylum system or would you like to see changes in the way that it works? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Maybe you've had some experience uh, applying for asylum here in the U.S. We'd love to hear from you. Number again is 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or as always, you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, one, one question I have, and this came up a lot um, uh, around Afghanistan, is how much better could we make things keeping in place the current policies, but essentially executing better, like technocratic fixes to make the asylum uh, system move faster, like getting through people's cases more efficiently? Like, is that what needs to change? Or do you think or would that help? Or is that just sort of um, just not up to the scale of the problems that we're seeing? So I, I think the you know, you, you sort of preface this with the situation of, of Afghan refugees, and actually they're not processed in the system in the U.S. that has all these backlogs. So again, this is this distinction between the U.S. refugee admissions process, you know, the admission of, of Afghans, where I think the problem was the Taliban, you know, the country falling to the Taliban and the difficulty um, in getting people out and I think inadequate planning to, to realize that this could happen and those at risk should be evacuated prior to the country falling in the hands of the Taliban. I, I think that's where we could do better by um, Afghan refugees is increasing the number that we take in. You know, the, the misperception that a lot of Americans have is that the U.S. and other Western countries are overburdened with asylum seekers when the reality is 90% of the refugees of the world are are hosted in poor countries. So one of the things we could do vis-a-vis the overseas, you know, U.S. refugee admissions program, which would apply to the Afghans, would be um, increasing our numbers of how many we accept. There are 80 million refugees and displaced people in the world, and the number that um, that that the Biden administration has set is to accept 125,000 um, refugees from all countries in the coming fiscal year. And that's just not enough. That number should be um, much higher. But then when we go to the asylum system, people showing up, you know, asylum seekers showing up at our borders, mm-hmm. yes, more resources would be in order. But the problem we're seeing now is that the system was dismantled by the Trump administration <clears throat> and the Biden administration has been, I think, for political reasons, political calculus, unwilling to do the right thing. I I think it's not necessarily a a lack of resources. It's a lack of political will um, to do the right thing. What's interesting is, you know, if we look at what the Biden campaign promised to do at the border, um, it seemed as if they um, had a pretty strong grasp of the changes that the Trump administration had made. Um, You know, the Biden administration said that the this is I'm quoting now from the Biden's campaign website. 
The Trump administration has worked against this tradition, like the tradition of taking refugees, to drastically restrict access to asylum in the U.S., including imposing additional restrictions on anyone traveling through Mexico or Guatemala, attempting to prevent victims of gang and domestic violence from receiving asylum, systematically prosecuting adult asylum seekers for misdemeanor illegal entry, and severely limiting the ability of members of the LGBTQ community, an especially vulnerable group in many parts of the world, from qualifying for asylum as members of a particular social group. Biden will end these policies, starting with Trump's migrant protection protocols and restore our asylum laws. Has that happened? <laughs> For the most part, no. So, Alexis, I'm so glad you read that um, because I think it, it, it shows the, why there is a depth of disappointment, um, sense of betrayal from those who work on behalf of, of refugee rights and the rights of asylum seekers. And I think what we're seeing, un, you know, unfortunately, is there is a schizophrenia within the Biden administration where there, you know, those, there are those who really do want that to become the reality, to end these, these uh, unlawful and, and cruel policies. And there are those who, who are worried about a political price. And I actually, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people on the inside of the administration. And so I, I could say unequivocally that what motivates a lot of the harsh policies and the unwillingness to roll back um, things like Title 42 is the belief that somehow it will have an adverse political impact on the rest of Biden's um, hmm. agenda. And I do think that this is a miscalculation that, that the president should take the so-called bully pulpit and say why this is right. And I want to say one thing about Germany. When there was a you know huge number of of um, Syrians and, and Afghans in 2015, you know, seeking protection in Europe. And many countries were turning them away. And Angela Merkel said, we can do this. And she took in, I think, over a, a million um, uh, Syrian refugees. Everybody predicted it would be her political demise. It was very unpopular at the time. And now all of the polling that's done in Germany shows great support and the success of the contributions that those refugees have made to German society. And so what we need now is someone who, a Biden who is willing to say, I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to tell people why it's the right thing, why it's lawful, why it's consistent with our, um, our ideals and why it is the moral and decent thing to do. And, and so that's what needs to happen. Let's bring Patty from Santa Rosa into our conversation. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yes, um, I'm questioning why our um, immigration policies appear to be so strict with people coming into our country from the other Americas. We, this is a large group of continents here. We've got Mexico, Central America, South America, the Caribbean, and yet we seem to treat those people really as second-class citizens or refugees, if you will, uh, versus other places around the country. Um, the Americas are our neighbors, they're in our backyard. We share so much of the same culture, religion, ancestry. Um, so I'll hang up and I'd love to hear your reply to yeah. that. Thank you so much, Patty. Karen Musalo, um, maybe you could answer that question with respect specifically to Haiti, just to give us a specific example of um, the way that we've treated our other Western Hemisphere uh, citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Patty, thank you so much. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more there. 
there, I, I think that we would be naive if we didn't acknowledge the racism that has imp impacted um, not just our asylum policies, but our immigration policies writ large. And Haiti and our treatment of Haitians is, a is such a stark example. Right after the US enacted the Refugee Act in 1980, one of the first things that Ronald Reagan did was he entered into an agreement with the then Haitian dictator, Jean-Claude Duvalier, um, which allowed the US to go uh, put, send the Coast Guard out into international waters, uh, interdict Haitian asylum seekers, and essentially return them to Haiti. So even though the law said anyone who reaches the U.S. can apply for asylum, what was Reagan's one of Reagan's first actions under the 1980 Refugee Act? Let's make sure those Haitians don't make it to the U.S. where they could seek asylum. And so now what we're seeing in Del Rio, uh, Texas, is for many people resonates so strongly in all the worst of ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this is we could contrast the way that Haiti has been treated with uh, Cuban uh, refugees. Yes, thank you for that, Alexis. A great, it's a great contrast. This shows where it's not just race, but it's also foreign policy. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the, the U.S., you know, wants to have its what, what used to be called trophy refugees. So it's, you know, you want to show that Cuba is a is a repressive government. Well, then you welcome and herald the entry of 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 Cuban um, Cubans who flee the island. Any Cuban who made it to the U.S. Uh, didn't even have to apply for asylum within a year of being here could be adjusted to lawful permanent resident status, whereas Haitians we were interdicting them at sea and returning them to a country um, which was so repressive. And partly we had supported the repressive leaders of, of Haiti. So we see foreign policy as well as race um, are in there rather than the humanitarian concerns, which should be the, mo the primary concerns in a law like the Refugee Act. Um, that was also Noel had tweeted that question as well. Why are Cubans allowed in but not Haitians? So I hope she heard that answer. Um, Minha writes, didn't the Biden administration give Haitians protective status in May 2021? Could you ex please explain why the Haitians at the border didn't get that protection? Great question. You, um, so the way the temporary protected status works is there's a date that's declared. So when temporary protected status was extended to Haitians, that decision was announced on May 22, 2021, this year, and it applied only to Haitians who, had, who were present in the U.S. as of the prior day, May 21st. So any Haitian who arrived subsequent to May 21 is not covered by temporary protected status. But here's the thing that's so important and brought out by Menha's question, is that when um, when uh, uh, Secretary Mayorkas announced TPS for Haitians, he said the reason that he was doing it was because of the dire human rights conditions in Haiti and the political instability and the earthquake, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not lost on anyone, the, 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 the hypocrisy of in May saying that we can't return, you know, we're going to protect people, Haitians that are here. And then in in September to be returning people without even the chance to seek asylum. Yeah. You know, we these are sort of clear moral questions, but on the sort of logistical side of like, well, what should actually be done? There's some good examples like Germany in which things seem to uh, have have worked well. 
Um, are there other examples around the world of, of places that seem to have figured out what to do with all kinds of displaced peoples, whether from war, climate change, or or just economic migrants whose um, whose local livelihoods have been destroyed? So I, I think it's, it's a good question. What should be done, and are there examples? I, I do think there are some countries that do it better than others. Um, and I would point to our northern neighbor, Canada, um, that has applied the, the refugee definition in a fair way across the board. We don't see the kind of um, pol- foreign policy and, and racial biases um, as, as clearly. I, I don't want to say they don't exist. And just to give an example of their generosity, um, they have already declared they would take at least 20,000 Afghan refugees, which for the size of their country, that's a significant commitment. And you could contrast it with the UK that said it would only take, you know, 5,000. So so there are countries that do it better. Now, some might say Canada is not a good example because Canada doesn't have a border with Mexico. But but there's something I want to mention that countries could do. So it, it is true that some countries share borders that that um, that result in larger numbers of um, asylum seekers arriving. But there's a concept in international law referred to as burden sharing, which is, okay, one country, uh, you know, may have quite a few uh, asylum seekers at its border. Don't turn them away. Adjudicate their claims or, or, or coordinate an international response. And that was really what was done when there was a large outpouring of Vietnamese refugees. There were international um, conventions convened where countries around the world made agreements to take a certain number and give them protection. So th- we, we are not in a situation where the only option is um, we have to return people to their death. There are so many other responses that are both principled. And, and then okay, one other thing, when Alexis, you say what should be done, my, my bottom line is we should comply with the law and our international obligations, full stop, because then we wouldn't be returning individuals the way we're doing. We've been talking about the history and evolution of U.S. asylum laws with Karen Musallo, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a great pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk with Ambassador Claude Alix Bertrand, Haitian ambassador for UNESCO, and about and we'll talk about how the Bay Area's Haitian community is processing the current events. Do you have questions? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As we've been talking about, Haiti is grappling with an unprecedented environmental destruction after a recent hurricane and earthquake. A political crisis following the assassination of the Haitian president has also left the Haitian people with a crashing economy. And we can't forget the pandemic continues there, too. 
After the U.S. began deporting some of the approximately 13,000 Haitian migrants who arrived at the Mexican border, the U.S. Special Envoy for Haiti resigned in protest, citing the inhumane treatment of Haitian migrants as well as the decision to deport them as they flee political and environmental devastation. Joining me to talk about the Haitian migrant crisis is Bay Area resident Claude Alix Bertrand. He's Haiti's ambassador to UNESCO, a part of the United Nations which seeks to provide international collaboration through education, science, and culture. Welcome. Good morning. So uh, where do we start? Where do you start the clock on the current crisis at the border? Like you could go back a long way in time or do you see it? as, you know, something that really developed just, you know, since 2010 or in the last year? Like, what's your timeline for the current situation? Well, I think there's an accumulation over time that can be traced back to the political instability in Haiti that dates back to after the Duvalier government left in 1986. Mm -hmm. And over the years, just exponentially got worse um, with, you know, more political instability and therefore, the, the security and the lack of opportunity in the country forced a lot of people to look for asylum or for refuge elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, go ahead. I, however, you know, when you say, do I think that it goes back to 2010? Um, you know, this is the most devastating earthquake that we have ever seen. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives, and the ones who survived it, who were already living in an impoverished state, found themselves, you know, without options. So all of that combined, I think, forced people to look for the opportunity for for livelihood elsewhere. Yeah, and when you when you look at that situation, if you could change U.S. policy in some crucial ways. What, what would you do? You know, it's strange. I don't think that U.S. policy needs to be changed. I just think that it needs to be implemented equally for all that are involved. Mm-hmm. You know, if this was a different country with um, perhaps a different ethnic background, I think we would see better follow-up and better opportunity for people seeking opportunities within the United States. And I'm not sure if what I'm saying makes sense to you. There have been many um, promises made. um, You know, if we just go back to what's happening at the border at the moment for people to be not just deported, but also um, uh, taking away their their the right that the United States offers to asylum seekers to apply for asylum to be taken away is a clear indication that, you know, not everyone's treated equally. Mm-hmm. And you think that's essentially a form of kind of structural anti-blackness that's not maybe not embedded in the policy itself, but in the implementation and enforcement of that policy? Look, what we know for sure, and, and these, are, these are facts, this is not something I'm making up, yeah. depending on which part of the border you go to, you will be processed differently. So depending on where you arrive at the border you may receive very different treatment than a a different city. So it almost depends on whom is processing you and what their points of view are that they decide which part of the law that they want to uphold or 
um, dismiss. Yeah. You know, in um, Daniel Foote, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti's mm-hmm. letter, um, he, I'm just quoting from his letter here, said the U.S. has publicly supported de facto Prime Minister Dr. Ariel Henry as uh, interim leader of Haiti and have continued to tout his, quote, political agreement over another broader earlier accord shepherded by civil society. The hubris that makes us believe we should pick the winner again is impressive. This cycle of international political interventions in Haiti has consistently produced catastrophic results. Do you do you agree with that fundamental analysis of what of, of Haitian politics in the U.S.'s role? Well, first of all, let's go back to the letter. The letter that Mr. Foote wrote is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. We've never seen any type of diplomatic envoy at any level from the United States condemn the United States' uh, position. You know, we often get you know, behind closed doors, an agreement that says, yes, we realize that we can do this differently or we can do this better. But for it to be a publicly um, acknowledged situation is unprecedented. (laughs) And for that to get to that point, let me just shed some light on this for you. You know, the level of gangs in Haiti is just so high. This weekend, in one day, there were over 20 um, um, kidnappings in one city. Mm. Um, we are talking about people who are, I would say, you know, who have had the opportunity to live in the United States. And I'm talking about people within a certain class who have the ability to travel and who have the opportunity to perhaps apply and live overseas, who had over the years remained in Haiti. Mm-hmm. because somehow they felt that, you know, this is our country, we're going to remain here and we're going to uh, manage it. Those very people um, in conversations with me in recent um, months are all seeking refuge elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to Mr. Foote's letter, it's not, he didn't arrive at that point because he was being fickle or because he was being... Um, taunted, I think that he arrived at that con- conclusion because what he's seen is truly unprecedented. So, so I wanted to ask you what um, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman then fired back with. You know, she said, and I, again, now I'm quoting her, our mm-hmm. interest is that the Haitian people can choose their future. We don't take sides with anyone. We're for democracy in Haiti. Kind of a little bit of boilerplate there. But then she said, and one of the ideas that Mr. Foote had was to send the U.S. military back to Haiti. I can tell you, quoting still, I can tell you sending the U.S. military back to Haiti is not the answer. Is this something that you personally would support, like U.S. military intervention, if that was one of the things that the special envoy had on the table? Look, after 1986, um, you know, when President Aristide arrived in power, he did two things. He dissolved our army basically canceled it. And then he dissolved the police. So we became a state that was being governed without any protection. You know, if, if we go ahead and we put signs on the highway that say we can only drive at 65 miles an hour and there's no one to enforce it, I don't think anyone would drive at 65 miles an hour. So when you're talking about um, a state where there is no repercussion for bad behavior, there is no one to enforce the law, you arrive at a chaotic situation. 
President Aristide was put back in power by the United States by force by President Clinton. So it ended up becoming a state that was being governed, although at the time the crimes were not as high as they are now, without army intervention mm -hmm. and without the possibility of police to protect the people. Mm -hmm. Over the years, now what has happened is these gangs that are so numerous they can't be counted have taken over. Recently, sir, there was a police station that closed its doors because of insecurity. Hmm. I don't know if, 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 if I can say that loud enough for people to understand. The police station closed its doors for insecurity because they were fearing from their lives from the um, um, gangs that are um, um, operating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so that being said, um, when Mr. Foote says that he thinks that having um, some sort of force, I'm not exactly sure if that force would have to be um, you know, the United States military force, but some sort of force that would help to restore law and order. I don't really see how we could arrive at it on our own when we don't have, it would take us years to form a new army. Yeah. It would take us years to form, to have enough police with the proper training to be able to protect the people. The United Nations had sent, you know, UN peacekeepers that were on the ground for many years. Those peacekeepers came with pros and cons. There was a lot of accusations of um, improper behavior, including rape and, and um, the, the spreading of cholera and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, which was all um, seen as negative. However, me standing from the outside, I can tell you that at least there was a force that could help to create a presence of a certain um, reinforcement of, 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 of force, if you would. So I don't think Mr. Foote is wrong. I think it would have to be carefully crafted. I think it would have to be carefully uh, put in place. And, you know, again, something very controversial that I'm going to say, when President Clinton decided to, you know, by force, reinstate President Aristide, who, you know, removed our army, removed our, our ability to protect ourselves, he also supported many um, subsidies, which again, he's admitted personally that he thought that that was a great mistake uh, from the United States to help Haitians with subsidies of rice and beans and things that were coming in to feed the people. Those subsidies came in where they were, supposed, they were being given for free to, to the population crushed the local markets. it for those completely things. crushed the local markets and eventually our productions were no one would buy them mm -hmm. because what was coming from overseas was a better quality and it was free mm -hmm. so you're looking at a state that all of its ability to whether to protect itself to nourish itself to contain itself have all been taken away little by little again it didn't happen overnight um, this is, we all know, you know, how long ago, uh, Bill Clinton was president. We take that and put it into effect today. And you realize that you're in a situation that 30 years after the Duvaliers left, every infrastructure that we had has either been destroyed by a prior president 
the devastating earthquake, the numerous hurricanes that we've had, and has created a, an environment of survival where these people who are there, they don't have opportunities. The opportunities have vanished. They're no longer there. So it is almost a situation where who can survive this and how are they going to do it? Yeah. must be so hard to see that happen to your country. Ambassador Claude Alix Bertrand. I, I, I want to bring in um, some of our callers who also have some questions. Scott from San Francisco, you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Um, I, I, I want to start off by saying that, that I uh, very much appreciate the, uh, uh, the guests' uh, comments about some of the history with Haiti um, and uh, a, a series of policy missteps obviously have created a horrible situation in Haiti. Uh, but it strikes me that a similar situation we could talk about in Honduras and El Salvador uh, we could talk about for maybe 250 million people in, uh, in the parts of the Caribbean and parts of South America and parts of Central America. And the earlier law professor that you had on mm-hmm. was talking about somehow there was a right to come to the United States, and that is legally erroneous. Uh, the uh, guidelines uh, that apply and treaty rights that apply say that you have a right to apply for asylum. To apply for, right. You are being... If you are if you are being persecuted for religious, political, or ethnic reasons, and my question to your guest is: Is there is there persecution of people in Haiti for ethnic or political or religious reasons? And are the people who are showing up at the southern border, uh, who by and large have uh, come from places where they were already? in places of safety. They're coming from Chile, they're coming from Argentina, they're coming from Brazil. Are those people actually people who uh, deserve asylum because people in Haiti are persecuting them for their religious beliefs or for their ethnic uh, state? Or or membership of a particular social group or political opinion. yeah. Uh, agreed. The, the the law in the U.S. has has expanded to say that people who are, uh, for instance, gay and are prosecuted for being gay, that that is uh, uh, grounds under U.S. asylum law. But my question for your guest is I recognize the horrible situation, and I think it probably applies to 250, 300, maybe 400 million people. Well, let's get let's ask let's ask Ambassador Bertrand. Um, What do you think, Ambassador Bertrand? Well, I think that the simplistic approach um, um, that's just been presented is simply um, it, 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 it's too it's overly simplified, um, sir. If you I don't know how how closely you follow Haitian politics or you follow the, the the news in Haiti, but someone can be killed there for so many different reasons on any given day. It could be because of the person that you voted for last election. It could be because you took a photograph with someone that is affiliated with a particular group. It could be because of the person that you had dinner with last night, or maybe you didn't even have dinner with them. You were in the same restaurant where they had dinner. And the, the, the perception is that you're supporting a particular group or not. Um, so when you say, is there? No, it's not, is there? It's which one do you want to choose? Because people are prosecuted on so many different levels 
that I assure you someone leaving Chile and walking for months to arrive at the Mexican border, Mm -hmm. seeking asylum with their children. I just would like you for one second to put yourself in their shoes. It is not because they're looking to come for a vacation. It is because the life that they've had, these are people who are seeking an opportunity to remain alive. I'm not sure if you also heard some of the interviews of, of these people at the border who said they would rather die they go, than go back in Haiti because being deported there it, it, it basically meant that they were going to die. Let me, um, let me shed some light for you on some of the gangs that have taken over certain cities. There's a city called the city of Martissan, which is in the, the south of Port-au-Prince, um, that gangs have taken over. So for whatever reason, these gangs decided to take over an entire city. They have chased out of the city every single resident. And those who didn't leave were killed. These people all fled to Port-au-Prince, their homes, every possession they have were taken over by gangs. And since then, these gangs control the road. After the most recent earthquake, that took place in Haiti. That road is crucial to deliver aid mm-hmm. to the south of Haiti where the, where the devastation was. Do you know that people had to negotiate with the gangs mm-hmm. in order for them to get the aid through? So when someone says, you know, it would appear to them that this is, um, you know, is there, is there a religious affiliation? Is there a political affiliation? I would think that if you spoke to any single one of them, that they could find many different um, umbrellas that they could go under. We've been talking with Ambassador Claude Alix Bertrand, Haitian ambassador for UNESCO. Thank you so much. It's been hard to hear. We'll continue this series on asylum over the next two days by talking with members of the Bay Area's Afghan and Central American communities. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.